There's a, com a commercial, an ad, that runs uh, seeming incessantly. The Georgia Lottery. We have this couple. Uh, the husband comes in, informs his wife that they've won the lottery, $15 million. This immediately uh, creates a mood of expressed discontent. Uh, what can we do? We, we, we needed a new washing machine. Um, I think she says next, maybe she needed a pedicure or something. It goes. And he says, uh, he apologizes, he said, I just got lucky. And then she turns away with this awful look on her face. We'll have to stop the cable. Well, you're sitting there somewhat, uh, somewhat puzzled by this response. Well, that's the, that's the design of the commercial. And the ad <clears throat> is that the point, as we all well know, is that to be overwhelmed with a lot of money gives you great opportunity. <clears throat> However, there is a lesson embedded in this, is that to have much does not guarantee contentment. I'd like for us to consider something tonight found in Philippians in chapter 4 in verses 10 through 13. Will you turn there, and I'm going to read it, and we'll develop it <clears throat> as we go along through the study this evening. And I want you now just to pick up with me at Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 10. Now, please, let me say something about what's going on here. This is the end of a letter, a well-known letter. And <clears throat> it seems to be, I think you will notice that it's right on the surface that Paul is expressing thanks. This is... Part of a thank you note, Philippians, as I guess maybe you could say the quintessential thank you note, <laughs> where he goes through his, um, what we would say, an, an upbeat letter. He speaks of joy and in the midst of difficult circumstances. And he's thanking the, uh, the Philippian church for their financial generosity to him. They have responded often. And this was a church up in Macedonia that they did not have a lot of wherewithal. They gave sacrificially. They, were, they loved Paul, and they wanted to enter into his ministry. And they gave to him, and he writes to thank them. What do you say, why does he thank them? Well, the obvious is he's thankful. But yet there is something that's under the surface as well. Paul had his critics. And one of the criticisms that came up often was that Paul was covetous, that Paul was greedy, that Paul was not content, that Paul was after your money. I could have you go and look in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Acts chapter 20 and verse 33, 1 Corinthians 9. You can see in these letters where he is bringing up arguments in defense of a heart that's free from covetousness and greed in his relationship to offerings, to gifts, to support. And he has to answer that. So he seeks here, I think, in Philippians, not simply to say a big thank you, but to deflect criticism that he is covetous of their gifts. 
Um, well, let's read it, and I think you'll, you'll see what uh, comes up here. There are a few things I think we can safely, in a sanctified way, even read between the lines on. He says, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now, at last, and don't get the wrong impression with that at last, this is not a rebuke like, well, you finally showed up. I was really looking forward to the check in the mail. That's not the implication. But he's stating that now, after a long period of contact, he has heard from them, and he is so thankful. So he says that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, not that I speak from want. Uh, Here's where he offers the caveat. Here is, please, don't misunderstand. He's bearing his soul. He's expressing something here with regard to his motives. And actually, from this point down to verse 13 is a, a bit of a parenthesis. And you'll see what it embodies and how it speaks directly to our subject tonight, the issue of contentment. Not that I speak from want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And he wants them to see, of course, that he's not complaining. Please understand that. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well-known verse. We'll come back. We'll, well, we're going to get there. Um, well, I've got a few comments, but let's, let's just get back to it in this verse. I want you Treasure it and and love it and appreciate it in its context. And I hope that can be accomplished. I want to begin by just putting up, if you could maybe, if you could set this up over the threshold of this study tonight. And it's a question, and I'm going to come back to it at the conclusion. What are the consequences for lack of contentment in Christ? So I will confess to you now, I'm going to end on something of a very sober note and a warning. Lest we think that this matter of contentment is, hey, okay, so no harm here is there. If I'm not contented, after all, it's not like adultery. It's not like murder. Um, So lack of contentment, um, is it that really that big a deal? Can I just kind of live that way? I you may think, I've known people who are just lifetime card-carrying complainers, and it just seems to be the way it is with some. I repeat the question. What are the consequences for lack of contentment in Christ? Hold me to that question. We'll come back around. First of all, let's do this. I'm going to walk you through five, five propositions with regard to the truth, the issue of overcoming contentment. With this uh, little sidebar, understanding the biblical doctrine of sanctification, I 
feel like I need to say something about that each time. When I say overcoming, I want to remind you, we have overcome in Christ and that we've overcome the penalty of sin. We're forgiven. We are overcomers in that God the Spirit through his word enables us in dealing, working through sin to overcome and fight it and to grow and to bring honor to the Lord as we overcome the power of sin. And one day we'll overcome in that we will overcome by being delivered from the very presence of sin. You say, that's sanctification 101. Okay, but don't forget it. I will tell you, some folks can really get messed up when it comes to such issues as sanctification. And they don't understand that in the way the Bible presents even overcoming. With that said, let's come back. And our first, my first proposition is this. I want to go right to the point and give you a definition of contentment. <clears throat> I've uh, hammered out a couple of them. I have a Exhibit A, and I have an Exhibit B. I guess maybe because I thought maybe Exhibit A I could add a little something. So if you'll allow me that indulgence. Then I want to give you another one from somebody who lived about 400 or so years ago. <clears throat> Contentment is the freedom to live completely satisfied in God, independent of one's circumstances. Or my Exhibit B statement would be that Christian contentment is a disposition of thought and life which enjoys satisfaction in Christ in every circumstance. I've added a couple of things there. It's that disposition of thought and life which enjoys, please hold on to that word, Satisfaction in Christ in every circumstance. I'll break it down just a bit. This means that it is learning to not let circumstances or people drag us down in unbelief. Now, that's going to be a critical issue when we get down to the conclusion. Remember my presenting question? What are the consequences of a life of a lack of contentment? Well, keep in mind this word unbelief. We shouldn't allow circumstances of people to draw us down into unbelief. This contentment of which we're speaking, and I think of which Paul speaks here in, in Philippians, that it knows how to be truly joyful regardless of our circumstances. Truly joyful. Now, I want to give you from a quote that goes back a long way to, uh, well, yeah, about four or five hundred years Jeremiah Burroughs. Anybody heard of Jeremiah Burroughs? A Puritan writer and a book that uh, I picked up off the table the other day. I'm familiar with this book, but uh, if I had a copy, I couldn't find mine, and I saw it, and here it is. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. A Puritan paperback. I, I recommend this to you. Uh, this book, now, you, when you read the Puritans, you've got to shift into a special gear, and you can't be in a hurry. And this is, uh, uh, you, you, the books, uh, the writings of the Puritans can be a bit thought-dense in that they will take a concept, a 
truth, and they'll turn it every which way and look at it. And that can be, that's very helpful. So I'm not being critical of that, but be prepared when you do that. And you'll think, well, is he ever going to the next point? But he keeps, they, the Puritans, keep bringing up additional ways of looking at this. They thought things through. They really did. So I'm just giving a little commercial to the book. If, I'll say more about another book I have with me along the same line. But anyway, here's Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, Christian contentment, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll leave it. It speaks for itself. Okay, let's, second proposition. Let's go there. Excuse me, I didn't give you, this is the danger of, of uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time, uh, running the clicker and, and talking, that, uh, all right, you ready? Let's consider the second, that contentment must be learned. Now, here we want to look back in the text. We want to look at four words. I'm going to do just a little bit of um, word examination. Um, first of all, the word contentment itself. The word contentment itself doesn't appear all that often in the New Testament, but in some very special places and communicates some real important truths, like in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it's verse 6. The word literally means it comes from two words. The original word comes from two words, which means self and sufficient to be self-sufficient. Now, don't, don't stumble over that and think that, well, I, what I'm about to go on to, do, to explain and describe is that, well, contentment is not being self-sufficient. But that's the word in its, in its, its root idea. There are three words, we'll come back to that. There are three words that are used in this passage that Paul uses to describe the learning of it. You note them in the text. The first one that occurs, translated learn, the Greek word is the word monthano. Monthano. It's in verse 9. It simply means that if you're going to understand what contentment is, there is... A, an element of being instructed in propositional truth, like what we're doing right now. Like, here's what it is. Uh, here, uh, here are the, here's the context. Here are circumstances. And how do you think about Christ and God and what's going on in your own soul? So you learn it. So through propositional instruction. Then there's a second word. It's in uh, the next verse. I think it's in verse, verse 10. It's the, the Greek word oida, say, to know. That's the idea of, of reflecting, of reflection upon re- propositional truth. It's reflection based on information, perception that's based on biblical truth. So you see, these are words that overlap a bit, but they are telling us some very important things about where we need to go to learn contentment. So there is We've got to have biblical truth and teaching to get a handle on it. And 
there's going to have to be perception, a grasp of it, as the significance of it. And then there's a third word. He uses a little later on down in verse, I think it's in verse 11, where he says again, he's learned it, but he uses a different word when he says he learned contentment. And it's the word muo, M-U-O, muo, mueo, actually, M-U-E-O. It's from the word muo, which means to literally to shut the mouth. <laughs> and you wonder at first, what in the world does that have to do with learning? But it comes from a context of being initiated into some secret society. So like you're pledged that you're not going to go out and you're not going to broadcast it. Well, that's not the point he's making here. But the idea is of initiation. There is some initiation into this process of grasping what contentment is. So you have these words. Propositional truth, you've got to have the raw material. Or God's revelation. The Holy Spirit gives a grasp of it. And a part of that process then, a big part, is being initiated into it. So where you're going to get some, shall we call them, uh, a practicum, <laughs> where there will be, as we will we'll observe a little later on, there will be experience in life that is part of this learning. So contentment, then, must be learned. It is not natural to most of mankind. The natural heart is a complaining heart. Uh, children... Um, they want to complain, and they have ways of expressing complaint. And it's not a way, it's not a pretty way, but it's a nat- the natural heart of man wants to push back and resist. Uh, <clears throat> we are covetous and envious. That's our nature. And to be surrounded by Whatever, good circumstances or what we may define as bad circumstances, doing without or not having uh, or having a lot, that uh, we can still, we can say, if I had, then I would be happy. That's the way human nature tends to trend. Our idols, our idols will always fail us. Our wants reveal what we really cherish. What do you want? As we're going to probe and pull this back a bit, pull the layers back. To be discontented, you've got to go inside and say, what is it that you want that you think will make you content and satisfied no matter what? And our idols always fail us, which gives us a huge, huge bay window into considering the nature of discontentment. And we must add this as well, that, um, well, excuse me, that our culture conspires to keep us discontent. Oh, does it ever. I guess any, you could have said, you could say this of any culture, but we're not unique in that. But we have the apparatus that's in place and through the 20th century tech, 21st century technology and communication, where we have TV ads, they hammer on us, always stirring up some dissatisfaction. Your car's not good enough. 
And on top of that, they're going to change some fender or some look or something or other. And you'll begin to get a little dissatisfied. I remember spending a few years back, we were off on a trip somewhere and with, the, with our traveling group. And we rented a car. And that's, that can be a dangerous thing. <laughs> and it, it was a new car. It was a new, nice car. And it had some gadgets on it that ours didn't. And quickly, one of those gadgets was is that I could just look there at that screen and I could see everything behind me. Now, some of you have this in your car and say, what's the big deal? But um, <clears throat> we didn't have that. And uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's this time of life or not, but I'm really, you know, in parking lots when you have to have your head on a swivel of a 360 and you're at the grocery store and you're trying to back out and you don't want to hear that sound of metal against metal. Oh, wow, what an idea of camera in the back. So I can see in the back. Well, I must confess, since being back, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I don't know where that's going to go, but... Uh, there it is for what it is. Um, and, oh, goodness, this could go on, you know, this dissatisfaction. Phones um, and uh, electronic gadgets and clothes. Now, for this audience, maybe more older people, that's not a big deal. You don't look in your closet and think, wow, my stuff is really out of style. You may, but... Uh, uh, you're thinking it looked good 30 years ago. It still looks good. So, and But I can tell you, teenagers, uh, middle schoolers, teenagers, with some labels and fads and shoes and athletic shoes and all those things, that the, the advertising community, they know it, and they work on them and work on them. And so we have uh, instant gratification is a cultural, the guardrail in the culture where people were, you can get what you want when you want it, and you have a right to get it so, you know, that you can get the hurry-ups to feel good. You know, also, uh, politicians have a way of really stoking, stoking the fires of discontentment, don't they? Did you listen to the State of the Union speech? Could that stir up some dissatisfaction in folk? Oh, just go down the list. And class envy. And the top 1% doing, living spectacularly well. And I'm thinking, so what? <laughs> I don't know about you. I never grew up being really worried about that. I just figured, that's, hey, there are people up top who make a lot of money. I don't care. <laughs> and I don't care what they do with it. Um, but I don't know. Now it's become quite a, a useful political tool with a new generation. All right? Let's walk on. Let's walk on. That no circumstance in life is sufficient to make one satisfied. I don't need to ring the changes on this much, but just consider money, clothes, car, House, success, travel, friends, health, sex, family, job, hobby, sports. None of these things can ever be the source of a believer's contentment in life. Uh, this is sort of elementary, I guess it could be uh, for some. But for wisen the people who've been working toward finding the true meaning of discontentment, you've had to work your way through some of it. You live long enough and you can see 
that what you thought at one time may have brought you happiness and then, hmm, no, it really doesn't. Let's take another step. That contentment comes from God. Now, with this statement, I'm going to camp out. I didn't save the, what I thought was really the core, the issue of contentment. I didn't save it to the end. I put it right here because I want to be sure I get it. <laughs> we get it right here in the middle before we run out of any uh, mental energy. And let's focus on it. So I'm going to work on this just a little bit. That contentment comes from God. It's a consequence of godliness, 1 Timothy 1, 6. How so? The empowering Christ gives us what's necessary to live above both want and plenty. And that Christ, therefore, he is the key to contentment. So my sufficiency doesn't come from myself. It's not in my own soul, in my own being. It's in Jesus Christ. Christ will provide. I will look to him. Now, this is obviously some kind of theological um, shorthand. It's, that is, I'm having to give you an abridgment here. But think of the truth streams. Think of what God has revealed. Remember the words for he's learned contentment? Think of the truth the streams of truth that come in to enable us to keep things and circumstances always in their proper focus. What are some of those truths? Think of the, think of the great truth with regard to that, that God is sovereign over my life in all circumstances. Think of the truth that God's given me the gifts he wants me to have. I don't mean material gifts. I mean what I can do. How I think, how I function, the kind of person I am, my skills, my abilities, that kind of thing. So it's not self-sufficiency. It's not self-sufficiency that is sitting in the midst of this truth of God's sufficiency, that he is sufficient. I like the way Calvin puts it. Here's what he said on this verse, on verse 11. John Calvin says, in, in regard to whatever circumstance I am, he says, satisfied. Satisfied. Why? Because saints know that they thus please God. Do you get that? Why are you satisfied in your circumstance? Because the way I'm responding in this circumstance, the most important thing here is I'm pleasing God. That, that's what's important. It's not what affecting me at the moment, circumstantially, but it's how I am showing my love for God and pleasing Him. So contentment then involves the indwelling and, yeah, it's a supernatural work, I'm coming to that point, that it's a supernatural work, but it involves His, Christ, indwelling and enablement. Now, the Spirit of God works in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. The Spirit of God works. These are some other streams that come in to feed and produce real, genuine, Christ-centered contentment as God works these conditions of soul in me and that it's a supernatural work 
And so I will depend on Christ for what I need. I will adjust my will to his. So when things are really tough, you find this out along the way, God sends the test. When things are really tough, then you will find out if your Christianity really works. Hey, let me ask you this. Does it? Or is it something you just want to go from one convenient situation to to the next, thinking that if you can get and string along enough convenient circumstances and you find yourself then meeting something terribly difficult, terribly exacting, terribly disappointing, do you fall in? Do you fall in more? Do you fall apart more than you overcome? Just a diagnostic question here. So, let's add this. It takes instruction. I've mentioned this already in those words, the manthano, the mueo, the oida, those three words. But it takes instruction. Contentment really does. What do you have to have? You have to have Bible knowledge. You have to have the illuminating work of the Spirit. That's where the Spirit of God comes and takes biblical truths and turns the lights on. Say, ah, yes, I see that. I understand that. You come to grips with a Romans 8 and 28, which ought to be a flag that flies high over all of your circumstances. Where God works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so it takes instruction. It takes initiative. Now, by initiative, I'm thinking of those words again, those in the text in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, that an initiative means that God's going to take initiative to teach me to be content. He's the teacher. He's going to set me up with the circumstances that are, that are necessary. He will, God governs the times and where I'm going to have plenty. By the way, we shouldn't. Think, oh, something must be wrong. Uh, wow, you know, a windfall, uh, maybe a raise at work. Uh, uh, I don't know, maybe an inheritance that you get or just something, Come things come together. You get some, you, over time, maybe you get bills paid off. You get a little financial freedom and you've got wiggle room and you have discretionary funds and your health stays reasonably well, and so you're not having to pay doctor bills out your nose. And, I mean, maybe think, see, some may think, uh-oh, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> Do you rejoice? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making these provisions. But then the bottom may fall out. There are unintended, unintended circumstances. It could be poor health, a chronic physical condition. Things go bad at the same time. The furnace goes out. The car, the car gives you problems. It's, you have to keep it in the dealership. Seems like continually, uh, one thing after another. Um, money's going out. You had some, uh, maybe you had some issues with the IRS, and you, well, anyway, things melt up. And so there are these what we could call the smiles and the frowns of divine providence. And God rules over them all, and he'll give you the smile of providence, and he'll give you the frown of providence. The question is, how are you taking it? How are you handling those? And 
We must add this as well. It takes initiation into the experiences of life, and that encompasses both prosperity and poverty, which Paul mentions in the passage. That, um, and by the way, would you, so that you'll understand that Paul was, I would think, reasonably well in, initiated into this, uh, could I have you just look for a moment at Second uh, Corinthians? Second Corinthians, please. And I want to read Paul's resume on this. So you think, this is just some, this is some ivory tower theologian, somebody that just uh, is up there above the fray. And, uh, oh, really? Well, I want you to look in Second Corinthians eleven twenty-five through 29. And this was written about four years before Philippians. And, uh, by the way, I didn't bring this out. I guess I should. This would be as good a time as any while you're getting to 2 Corinthians 11:25. Is that, think of Paul's circumstances the time he's writing Philippians. You know where he was? He's in jail. He was in prison. He was restricted. He was alone. That had to be, I mean, the psychological impact on a man like Paul just had to be very difficult to deal with. I mean, this was a guy who was on the move, and he's shut down. He can't go anywhere, or at least where he wants to go. And, and he's got to deal with thoughts about the future. It can be life. It can be death. I've got places I want to go, things I want to do for the Lord. And so little time, so little time. And then he had his personal needs. He wanted company. He wanted clothes. He needed finances. He had to pay for his food. So, I mean, Paul's speaking in that context. But now... Listen to what has occurred already in his life. This is beginning at verse, uh, with me now, 2 Corinthians 11 and 25. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. Now, I know that doesn't come up to the 47 days of Louis Zamperini, but uh, uh, it, it's not good says, I have been a, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the country, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Would it be fair to say that this ought to show up on Paul's resume to say what he's saying here? I've learned contentment in no matter what state I'm in. He's, here's, a man, here's a man who's experienced it, and he's speaking out of that experience. So there has, been, there has been prosperity. Now, you could go through the book of Acts. If you want to really see this, it, it really comes through. I, I did that briefly this afternoon. I just went through about six or seven different places in Acts where you, you find Paul, um, oh, okay, Acts uh, in Corinth. 
When he's arrested, he goes, he's received. It looks like it's an open door, but then it turns into be a really a, a, quite a, a lot of civil and legal pressures. In Athens, in Athens, he says in chapter 28 and verse 6, he was supplied with all he needed. Now, that was the end of the story where they were, they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. You know, and he heals the man, and then they're sent on the way, and they had all their supplies provided for them. Then there was Lystra, where Paul was stoned. There was Philippi, where Paul was beaten in the garage. You just go to, through the book of Acts, and you'll see these multiple circumstances played out in Paul's life. So he knows that of which he speaks. Now, let me just pause here and say something. You say, okay, that's Paul. But let's bring it really up close home. What about the circumstances, initiation into the circumstances of life? Uh, what about what about a wife? Who realizes to her great grief and disappointment that she's probably married to an unsaved man? Or maybe she was and he was both and they were both unsaved. Now she's a believer and he's not. Could that be some, really, could that be a struggle? I mean, I, it's rhetorical, you know the answer. It could be very difficult. Um, could it be that a husband who maybe, maybe some fault of his, but still dissatisfied with wife, his wife, she, they're, just, they're just not responding to one another like they used to? And... Maybe, she, I mean, to some degree, she's bearing some of the guilt here in this. She's got an agenda. She's got some criticisms. And so there is this nagging struggle with discontentment in the marriage. Discontented with the job. Oh, this job looked like it was going to be the dream job. Oh, oh, but then you get maybe some workers or a boss or some changes that are made in, in the policy um, job description, and it becomes less than satisfying, or a single person, single person. Oh, one of their great struggles could be, doesn't have to be, but could be, they look around, they see couples coming, getting in the car, talking, having a good time, you know, and they think, oh, my, here I am, single, sad. A teenager. A teenager who could struggle with, oh, if I could just have somebody else's parents, I could just be so much. Mine just always are just putting a lid on me. Well, let me go where I want to go, do what I want to do, wear what I want to wear, listen to the music I want to listen to, and hang out with whom I want to hang out. I mean, you can just go on and on and on with the potential circumstances. So prosperity, much love and attention. Poverty, no love and attention, and all that goes with it. But let's go to the third <clears throat> proposition. Contentment has its expressions. What's it look like? How would I know if you're content? Well, I can't fully know. I mean, you could fake things. That's not the point here. But I would say gratefulness and generosity. You would expect somebody who is content. In their all circumstances, um, you look and watch Paul, who's the man who said that he had learned contentment. Just look at the generosity and 
it's quite a study just looking at the very careful way in which Paul handled finances, sensitive to the issues of money, inner peace and joy, <clears throat> no matter what the circumstances. I mean, it's just in this letter that just up a few verses, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything. With what? Prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. So, I mean, this is the way it looks. Joy and peace. And I'm reminded of, if I could pick up what, what um, Luke says about those soldiers that were saved in their John the Baptist ministry. said they were content with their wages. So a content person. Are you content with your wages? Are you content with your financial situation? Are you tonight? Are you? We say, well, I'd like for them to be a little better. That's a different question, but we'll come to it. But are you content in Christ and rejoicing in him? And then are you content with just having food and covering? This is what First Timothy 6, 8 says, content with food and clothes. Thank you, Lord, for the clothes on my back and the food that you provide. And I will add this one as well, that this refusal to manipulate people to get what you want. I know it's kind of a negative, how would you know, but uh, sometimes people who, are, well, let's put it this way. People are content. They don't try to use people. They don't try to work on people like uh, poor mouth and uh, work on folks in such a way as, hey, do you get it? I need money. No. But let's add some expressions of discontentment. I have a few of those. Um, what would you expect to be one of the first ones? Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Complaint. I'll come back to that one. Debt could be. Uh, now, if you're in debt, I'm not saying you're, you're discontented, but I am saying that uh, it bears a close look while you're in debt. Um, are you spending what you don't have? Um, why are you spending what you don't have? What's going on? What do you want? Um, there's bitterness. Are you bitter? Uh, I reference uh, the, the study that we did on uh, resentment. And is there some underlying bitterness and resentment that keeps going on? Why is it there? Uh, a lack of generosity and gratefulness. And I will add restlessness. Um, uh, I, this is what I'm about to say doesn't mean if these things are occurring in your life or have occurred that you are a severely discontented person, but it does bear a closer look like moving all the time, moving a lot, maybe, maybe, um, jobs, just one job after another. Uh, trying to find contentment in some new place, some new thing. It just, it, this, this is just soul-watching, soul-scrutinizing uh, questioning that you need to do. Restlessness can be a sign that there is some lack of value. Where are you trying to find happiness and contentment somewhere else other than in pleasing God, no matter what your circumstances? Now, let's go to the final proposition and consider it. We must be aware of the challenges to, dis to contentment. What I mean, that, that it will be in the following ways. 
there is the challenge of mistaken identity. What I mean by that is contentment is not passivity or laziness. It's not, it's not having a dislike for money. I remember someone saying once, though they did have access to an income, but they were, and I think as I recall, well, that's enough. But uh, the, remember this person saying, he didn't like money. Is that the way the Christians say, I don't like money. Don't want to seek to earn it and such. Um, or as complacency. Complacency is not contentment. It's being satisfied with the way things are. You know, I could see where one could say they're just the kind of person they like the status quo. Hey, I'm good. And is that contentment? No. Biblical, God-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-generated contentment is robust and moves toward God in expression of love and moves out to others to find ways to serve him and use the means that God has given to you to serve him. There is the challenge of denial. It's possible somebody could say, it's just not possible. There's usually maybe in, maybe in a group this size, somebody who's just, maybe discontentment has been, become so much a part of your way of viewing life, so much of your worldview. And maybe you grew up in a home where there was just a chronic discontentment. You say, it's not possible. I don't know anybody like that. The challenge of substitutes. The challenge of substitutes. Relationships. Comforts. Yeah, you can find things that can give you a fix. And be you know, counterfeit contentment. It's not the Christ-exalting, God-centered, spirit-generated work of true contentment. Joyful, the dispo- life that's disposed to offer itself up to Christ as a sacrifice. But it's maybe in chemical cocktails. Hey, somebody can find, wow, I, whoa, the weed really makes me feel nice and mellow. Or whatever other kind of chemical cocktail. These are counterfeits, counterfeits, counterfeits. The challenge of severe loss. Uh, By severe loss, it could be death of a spouse, a child, a friend, a financial loss. I put this in a little statement in parentheses here. Sometimes the cargo has to be cast overboard to save the vessel. (laughs) Just to keep us reminded of when providence frowns and what God may be doing in our lives. But the challenge of a severe loss it's because I just want to acknowledge that we're not saying that contentment is contrary to grief. You can have deep grief. Well, let me go to this next one because it's closely related to it. Is that the challenge of unsanctified protracted sadness. Where perhaps you get into a job situation where there's just this ongoing what seems to be an, I mean, what, an inadequate income. And you don't know what to do with it. And you got to deal with it. How can I be content? There's nothing I can do about it. I, I remember fighting this battle early on. Early on, the church, I pastored a church when I went into my uh, THM master's work in seminary. And it was out in a rural area. And we went to a little country church. I uh, pastored there for about three years. And... Um, 
$75 a week. And I mean, I was, I was, I was happy. I was, we were, but it was, well, it was a struggle. And I remember the Lord, <laughs> one day we were living in a mobile home and it was a gray, rainy day in northern Indiana. Be a lot of those. And cold. And uh, we were going through. We, it, things were so bad. This is a public confession. I hope, Beth, when I'm, I'm not going too far. I can remember we, we, had, gotten, we, we had gotten ourselves extended. We, the milkman would come by our place and, and deliver milk. And we had gotten behind in our payments to the milkman. And I can remember we just did not want to be seen in the window when the milkman come, came and put the milk in that tin thing. And I had nightmares about that for you after that thing. <laughs> You've been there in those circumstances. So it's the place to meet God. But I remember I was saying I was looking out the, sitting there at the, the table looking out one day. And I looked at all, it was, there was these scores, these little sparrows out there. In this bleak-looking yard, after a snow, you know, where the snow was black and, and things are—I don't know what they're eating—but they were just working away. And I remembered what God said: He takes care of them; He'll take care of you. Okay? And learn. Contentment is learning. And so I'd add this last one. I'm going to have to get on by it because I'm just about out of time. And that is the challenge of the seasons of life. And I'm, I'm just submitting to you that every season of life has its own special challenges to learning contentment. Like, you don't get a degree in, in Christ-centered, God-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-generated contentment in serving others with your life as a sacrifice to him. You don't get a degree in that in the first five years, and then you're good to go. You, every season of life is going to test it, and in, in the desire of God is to bring you further along into what can be maybe more complicated situations, but every season of life. I'll, I'll leave that with you as to where you are. <laughs> and now I want to conclude. I said, you remember that presenting question? And I, w- I want to come back to it. That what are the consequences for lack of contentment in Christ? I don't have time to turn you the passage. I don't want to turn this into a sermon on top of a message, a sermon already. But I want to reference a passage from the book of Hebrews. And it's Hebrews in chapter 3. And embedded in this chapter is a warning. You, you're familiar with it. If I, I'll just say a few words. You say, oh, yeah, I remember that one. And it's where the, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to, he's speaking to Christians, by the way. Calls them holy brethren. And later on calls them brethren. The assumption that this is a Christian audience. This is not non-Christian. And... Then he references Israel's wilderness experience. And he says to his audience, don't harden your heart as they did in the day of provocation. Remember what they did? Israel came marching out of across the Red Sea, you know, and boy, they were there. They were flying high. Woo! Miriam, she jumps around with a tambourine and all the women in there dancing and singing. But it didn't take long to get into the Sinai, into the wilderness. And what do they start doing? They are just overflowing with discontent. They don't have water. They don't have food. Uh, Moses? Where's Moses? I don't know if we can trust him. And we went up to the mountain and gone. Hey, we can't trust him. Let's go. Let's do something with the gods that we worshipped in Egypt. And then, top it off, they get up to Kadesh Barnea. They sent the spies in to the land. 
check this place out. Because God said, I'm giving it to you. And when they come back, and what do they do? They get a majority report that says, we don't have a chance. We're toast. <laughs> you ought to see these. They're biggins. They'll kill us. And no chance, no way. God said, I've had it. And you know what he did? He disciplined that, dis- that generation. And he goes on to say in exhortation, don't fall away like they did. How did they fall? In disobedience to God, a generation. They were denied entrance into the land. By the way, the analogy of this is not denied entrance into heaven. That's not what Canaan represents in the Hebrews passage and referencing to the rest. They were denied access into the enjoyment of their inheritance. They couldn't go in. Even Moses couldn't. And so through that whole thing, what does he say? Don't harden your heart. Look where discontent takes you. Look where it takes you. Harden your heart. And what is hardening your heart? That's where you just don't respond to God. You you just, you can, I mean, you could hear on an earnest appeal in a setting like this. And you're thinking, I've got to get home, you know. Uh, there's something I want to see. Uh, uh, I've got things to do this week. And truth is not allowed to penetrate. Penetrate the heart. Examine the motives. Hard hearts get hard treatment. So they tested God. That's what he says in Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 8. What were these tests? Divinely designed to do what? To show Israel that they would to depend on him. He was their sufficiency. And be content in him. And so they tested him and they fell away. And they didn't receive their blessings in the enjoyment of the land. That's what it is. So then he warns his audience. Holy brethren, brethren, believers. He warns them. Beware. Be careful. You know, God can get angry at you. I would put it in three D's. The consequences of discontentment would be displeasure, the displeasure of God, deception, and deprivation. Displeasure, the anger of God, insulting God. Think of it. The God of the universe, perfect in all of his ways, righteous, infinite in his love, in his wisdom, in his kindness. And you're saying, I I don't believe a word you're saying. It's insulting God. And you invite anger as a believer. And self-deception. And you fool yourself. You think you're better off than you really are. You don't really know yourself. And then you lose the blessings that God's promised. Deprivation. So I'm saying the consequences of, of discontentment. The consequences are grievous. They're serious. And this, I think this marks out that that's that second warning in the book of Hebrews. And that a Christian can then fall into this terrible, terrible circumstance of being disciplined by God. Loss of reward. Wasted time. Rob, being robbed of blessing. And the judgment seat of Christ. Then the terrible loss. Whoa, it makes me want to say, Lord... I need to know you in contentment. Now, let me pray, and then I'll see. I'm five, six minutes over.
you have a question or two, I got another book or two here I just want to reference to you. And, but let's pray, and then we can go for questions. Thank you, O oh Lord, for this warning. But, Lord, oh, we thank you for your kind, wonderful, infinitely wise, loving hand in our lives. Lord, taking us into extreme circumstances, difficulties, where we have to do without some things. But, Lord, it doesn't mean you don't love us. And Lord, thank you for those times where you just, you give us so much extra. Thank you. But God, teach us all here in this place, this church, the joy, the rare jewel of Christian contentment in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.